Welcome to the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast, where our goal is to connect listeners to the great outdoors with hosts Brian Hoffmeyer and Ben Brandell. I'm host Ben Brandell, owner of Meant to Be Outdoors, instructor of outdoor skills, and passionate about personal growth. I'm host Brian Hoffmeyer, wildlife biologist and avid outdoorsman. Welcome back to the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast. I'm your host Brian here with my co-host Ben Brandell, and today we're going to be talking about a recent overseas trip actually a mission trip that you went on Ben and you know uh, you've been back actually for about a month now and this is a podcast that we've been trying to record we were trying to include um, some other people we actually did record it and the recording was bad we have been really trying to uh, overcome some obstacles for whatever reason or another whether it was uh, uh, God just waiting on the right timing or, or the or the devil not wanting us to put this message out at all uh, the topic, you know, being an overseas trip to Poland is a little different than anything we've ever shared uh, on the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast. We are going to be talking about some outdoor things and hunting and and the way that was used on your trip and even some survival stuff. Uh, uh, you know, kind of here at the beginning, we'll talk about your prep and the things you were looking at if you had to get home from so far away. Uh, but we really feel like there are some messages in this that need to be shared. Parents, I would like to disclaimer a little bit. Um, we we pride ourselves on being a family podcast, and, and this will be a family podcast. However, there are some heavy things in this that we're going to share um, about Holocaust and death that if you want to listen to first before you share with your kids, um, we're, we just want to say that here at the beginning that there will be some heavy stuff in this. Um, the great news is, is that Ben and the whole team went and, and served and made it home safely, mm-hmm. and, and we finally are here today getting to share this this message um uh, i didn't go i was i was here home with my family running the business and holding uh, down the fort holding down the fort right. held down the fort and uh we were blessed to have some work while you were gone so that that was great um but you made it home and we have been so busy since then too which is which has been great but can't wait to ask the questions and kind of facilitate this and, and really hear from you um there are some questions that uh, i haven't even really asked yet in the month that you've been home that i can't wait to to hear the answers too, and I hope that people find this real and inspiring and, and uh, thoughtful and really genuine as well. But before we start, let's give some thanks for, for where we're at today, and then we'll jump into uh, a Poland mission trip. So Ben, what are, what are you thankful for right now as we sit here today behind these microphones? A month later, I'm just still so thankful for my family, um, every single member of my family from the extended side down to the ones that live under my roof. So um, life is so precious. Family is, is so important, even if you're at odds with one of them at one day and, and close to the next. Um, family is is just like precious, man. So precious. So um, so thankful for that. So thankful for people. Um, really thankful for the people in my life. Yeah, and I'm definitely thankful for the people in my life. I'm even thankful for for the people in your life, your family that that I've gotten to know over the years. Mm-hmm. And uh, family is great. The people that we know um, that aren't blood are great. That we can call family. Um, it, it it is great. I'm thankful today uh, for the rain that fell. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we've been really needing it. It really when the rain falls now, you know. At, after the the flood subsided with Noah, God promised to never flood the earth again. So now, when when rain comes, it, it's the we have that promise, so we can praise the the fertility that it brings to to our land. It brings food really to the world, and and 
so thankful for the rain that fell today. Thankful for the fall weather. You know, we're sitting here with the windows wide open with the breeze blowing in. Mm-hmm. Put Got sweatshirts and jackets on because of the chill. And and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the seasons and, and, and what creation really brings. And uh, sometimes the weather can actually make you joyful and happy. And, and I'm thankful for that today. Absolutely. So. But anyway, let's jump into Poland, man. You're home. Even kind of going was uh, the whole the whole prep process because you had never traveled overseas. Right. You actually had to go through getting your passport for this process, and then just the thought of leaving your family behind. And those of you that 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 don't know, Poland is is it's not a war zone, but it is right next to Ukraine. And so the the reason you went was was to go help build a place for refugees coming out of Ukraine into Poland. So you are you were within an hour and a half of, of war. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that can be, there can be fear with that. Um, but you really had to prep your mind and your gear for what you could take overseas for that reality. So kind of talk us through that. What did, what did that prep process look like? What were you taking into consideration uh, before you left? So to go back to the passport side, I'd never had a passport in my entire life had to get one for this trip. And that process alone was wild, actually, um, through a long series of events because it, it was a long process process for me. I actually had camouflage in one of the jackets. It was actually a vest. I was wearing a vest for my picture. And they took my picture. I went in to get the passport. I actually did a uh, complete amount at the library. And as I gave them my photo, they're like, this is unacceptable. And I was like, well, Walgreens said it was okay. They're the ones that took it, right? But I found out that you cannot have any camouflage on anything in your passport. Uh, it appears to be military. Why? Because it, it looks like I'm military. Huh. So it was a hunting camo vest. You know, it was yeah. only in the, the top portion of my vest. The whole thing wasn't camouflage. Didn't even, I guess because I wear camouflage so much, I didn't even realize that. What if you wore a name tag over your camo that just said hillbilly? <laughs> <laughs> they probably wouldn't let me go. <laughs> but that was, so that was a learning experience. So you had to retake right your picture? So I had to, yeah, I had to go back, retake the picture, all that fun stuff. So that alone was like, wow, this is crazy. Um, but that's really where my search started. Um, I also found out that when you're traveling internationally, there are countries that do not allow for you to wear any kind of camouflage. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you actually helped me in that because I'm going to Jamaica this winter, and mm-hmm. in your search, you found that one of the countries that does not allow citizens to wear camouflage is Jamaica. So right. you're like, Brian, don't take any camo, and I was actually about to order a pair of camo swim trunks, <laughs> but I didn't order them. Did em. you have hillbilly in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know that because, we, again, we're so free to wear what we want here. Yeah, unknown, you know. So I'm glad I, I came across that because there is some some clothing like vests and and gloves and hats and stuff that I, that I do wear that has camouflage on it. So um, that kind of led into my search of what's allowed, what's not allowed, um, and then finding then you know where's my flight or how long is my flight? Where how long exactly? was it? How long was your flight from from U.S. to to Poland? Yes, uh, so from the U.S. to Poland was eight hours. And you had to do a, from Springfield, you can't fly. Yeah, so from where I'm from, I had to go to the local airport yep. um, there in Springfield, Missouri. And then I flew from Springfield to to Chicago, Illinois, and that's where that your interna- international flight leaves from. Um, so then left Chicago. Um, the rest of the party, um, I was meeting up with, with a large group um, coming up from the north, and they were actually flying out out of Boston and headed into 
um, Poland as well. So when I got there, their flights had got all messed up, and they were a day behind me. So I had actually arrived there all by myself. So you didn't spent know a full anybody day in, in Poland by yourself. Yep, that, just me. A little unnerving. It was a little bit, it, but you know, you asked, you know, how did I, how did I plan for that? What was it that I planned for? And and that gave me a little peace of mind because I had a plan. Yeah. And we've talked about this so many times of having a plan. But in my in my search, it was like, okay, let's say that that something does happen while I'm there. You know, we do have this war going on. What are some hypotheticals? And I just want to I just want to say, everybody listening to this, while he's sharing this, if you travel abroad or even travel within the country, these are things that we really do every time that we take a trip. So so take note of this, and you can apply some of th- these things to your travel as well. Yeah, because I wanted to. Well, first I want to make sure that my family was safe. So before I left. Again, I've already thanked family, and I knew that my wife and kids, even if something happened to me, were in good hands. I knew people would, would move in and help. And Yeah, you put me on vehicle watch. Yeah. If anything goes down with, with your wife's vehicle, I, I had to take care of it. Yeah, because we had some <laughs> we had some stuff going on with our vehicle before I left, and, and um, I, I got everything taken care of before I left, but I just knew while I was gone, something might arise, and so I was like, Brian, be ready. So again, having people in, in your life is so important that you uh, can call and can turn to. Um, so I'm just so thankful for that. But knowing that, um, knowing that if something truly happened to me while I was gone, um, that my wife and kids would, would still be taken care of. So that was a peace of mind, right? But then that research of what happens over there. So I first started kind of looking at how close would I be to the U.S. Embassy. So if, if something bad was to happen, I knew that I could go to the U.S. Embassy but then a little bit of history that we've learned that 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 isn't always a hundred percent. Like just because you're there doesn't always mean that that's that's the safest best option. Yeah. So you're not. They're not going to guarantee you help. Right. Because I'm responsible of myself. Right. Right. A lot of people may go over relying on other people to take care of them, and that's okay for a time. But you have to be responsible yourself. So first was where's the U.S. Embassy and 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 how far would that be? You know, to where I'm at. Now, it's, it's difficult to, like, you can get on Google Maps and, and look at the roads and all of that, but um, it's so different when you get over there just from looking at maps. You know, I'm so familiar with, with where we live, even here in the States, that I feel comfortable on the roads, but roads over there are a little different than, than the roads here. Um, well, for example, there is certain stretch of, of their toll roads that have no speed limit. You can fly, or not fly, you're going to drive as fast as you want. That sounds fun. <laughs> it would be, yeah, depending on, on if you're getting a drive or someone's driving for yeah. you, right? But again, like, you know, if you're walking on the edge of the road of that. So there's just a lot of a lot of thinking that I did within there. But um, I went first to the U.S. Embassy, and then if that was a fail, how can I get back home? What are my options? Right. And that's when I started looking at either flying or boat, because there's a lot of water between... You're Me taking your boat with you to Poland? Yeah, yeah, I actually packed an inflatable kayak. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. That would have—I would love to have had that. Yeah. Um, but looking at like your ports, you know, I know that um, uh, I was looking up imports and exports, and again, this is just so far far fetched and that really stretching it. But if if I couldn't make it to Germany, because that was going to be where I would want to go to, is towards Germany. Um, because I knew that's that's far enough away, I'd probably get a flight back home from there. But let's say that all of that shut down, I'm gonna have to go by water, mm-hmm. and so I started looking at at some of those big, huge ports. On, on is it even feasible? Yeah, and 
that was great for me even to hear that that you were doing those things and and I, we've traveled within the states together before for work and, and I know some of the things that we've done you know we we calculate how long would it take us to walk home from from Las Vegas or 38 days or whatever it was right. obviously you're not walking from Poland but um, you got some of that insight on places to look and things to consider from from a friend of ours who's who's in the military and mm-hmm. really kind of shared you know if you want to get home this this is the way you should do it um, and it's kind of crazy to I'm, I shouldn't say crazy it is different to think that way because we rely so much on look I paid for this airplane ticket I'm going there these people are going to take care of me I'm going to get on my plane I'm going to go I'm going to come. And nine time, 99 times out of 100, or even more than that, that's true. That's going to happen. But you need to prepare, be prepared for those small instances so that if, for some reason in your lifetime, if that does happen, that you do have something to go off of, something to, to start making your way back home. And that's kind of the survival piece of, of this podcast. Um, what about gear? Did you, did you pack any, any kind of gear, knives? Anything like that? Were you able to get any of that over with you? Yeah, in some of my search, I was looking at, is it illegal to have, you know, pocket knives? Is it illegal to carry a fixed blade six inches, eight inches? Like, what what are... Um, and in that, in that search, I found where I was going, you know, they consider pocket knives like tools. So I did take um, my pocket knife. I had to put it in my check luggage, of course. You cannot still fly in the plane with a, any kind of blade, a knife. Um, so I did carry that. And all my... You know, flying here in the states, um, I usually take a metal cup. I usually take my my big, huge ferro rod. All those things I usually take. You know, I got to a point in in packing and all of that of of kind of not really looking at the, being self reliant and more um, leave it in God's hands. Mm-hmm. Of you know what, it's so limited on what I can take. There's there's a little bit of confusion on, and I was like, and some of this equipment is really important to me. And I'm like, the number one problem in international flights is lost luggage. Right. I mean, that was, as I kept doing my search, like lost luggage. Like you're, There's just horror stories of people never getting their luggage back ever. And, and for whatever reason, we've been told that right now, lost luggage is even worse today than it's been in, in the recent years. It's really bad right now. Well, and that's where the other team that was going to meet me, at, the whole team that was going to meet me out there, um, it sounded like the, the airline, they were like protesting. And so that's why that airline couldn't take them, and they had to, to, well, we had to switch over to another airline. And so there is a lot of, of inconsistent uh, kind of chaos yeah. that is happening. Un- uh, there's unrest. Unrest, for sure. And so I went minimal, but I, I did take my knife. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I want you to share, if, if you're free to share, if you feel comfortable to share, uh I don't want to call it a secret, but it's a little bit of a secret. There was a piece of gear that you actually traveled with on the plane in your carry-on mm-hmm. that you took thinking they may take this from me, they may not, but you actually made it all the way over there and all the way back with this. And it's something we use to teach with all the time. Right. It's definitely yeah. a huge part of our survival programs. Um, and in the event of a plane crash or lost and having to walk, this thing would have been awesome for you to have. What was that? So I took two of them. I put one in my check luggage with my knife, mm-hmm. and then I kept the other one on me just in case they, they took it. So um, I have traveled before here in the states where I had a it's it's a little it was a little multi tool that was called the dime, but it was a little multi tool, and I had forgot I'd even had it in my in my carry on forgot, 
And as they went through, they found it and they're like, hey, we found this. I was like, I didn't even know it was in there. And they're like, do you want to ship it home or are you going to throw it away? Yeah, they're 20 bucks. Yeah, so I looked at the cost of shipping and it was more than what I could buy a new one for, so they threw it away. And so that was the same way with this item, which is our our ferro rod. Mm -hmm. Fire starter, ferro rod. It's a ferro rod. And um, now in my carry-on, I just had the rod. Right, and and the striker that comes with it was in the bag, but it wasn't connected to it. Yeah. So I actually had my ferro rod with my. I have some pins and those little pin slots in your backpack, and I just had them down in there, and I made it all the way from here to Poland and back, yeah, with the ferro rod. And and I'm not going to teach anybody here that's listening. You can definitely dig into some of the stuff we teach, but there's items in my bag that I could have had a fire on the plane in um five seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, faster than I probably could with a match. Right. Um. So. Why I'm sharing that is that I, I still had, I, I kind of had some comfort, like we're going to be over this water. So it gave me comfort. But then on the flip side of that, I'm over water. Yeah. Right. So. And that, you didn't have your inflatable kayak. Right. I didn't have my inflatable <laughs> kayak. But you know, that is one of my greatest fears. And I think I've shared this before that um, being lost out in the middle of the ocean, just in some little floatable raft even, um, that makes me really uneasy because there absolutely is no control. I mean, you are, you're literally there. There, You, you can't make water. You can't make fire. You can't make food. I mean, yeah. there's all the, and it happens. it's just so limiting. I saw a story recently of a, a tuna boat and the tuna boat sank and these guys and their whole crew, they threw their raft out and they there they were out at sea and their, and their life raft. That was, you know, just a month or so ago. So that... We see it in the movies, we read it in books, but it, it does still happen today. So hopefully you never have to live out that fear. But So another thing actually just came to me um, on these international flights now, they have um, cameras on the plane and they have like GPS location of where you're at, which is really cool because I could see in real time where we are at. So there'd be, oh, I'd take my, my naps or my sleep. And then when I would wake up, I would um, see where we're at. Mm-hmm. So I would always know like, Oh, Greenland's north of me, or I don't know if it's Greenland or Iceland now. I don't remember, yeah. but I'm like, oh, we're just south, or oh, now we're over the tip of wherever, and always just kind of being in the mind, like north and south. Like if we go down north, is there is some land here, or maybe there's some land east of me, just to feel more comfortable. You know, if this thing was to go down. So <laughs> you preach awareness in all our classes, and you really were being aware yeah. even when you were thirty thousand feet up. And you can verify that now because these planes have cameras on them right so i watched takeoff and landing um they had a they have a camera pointed under its bottom of the plane pointed down so you could see the road they had a camera pointed towards the front landing gear and then they had a, a camera on the tail of the plane pointed forward well if that front landing gear went out that's not a view i'd want to be looking at well that's what i was watching <laughs> like i kept switching back and forth like looking at the engines and then coming back to the landing gear because there's three views yeah. you can look from and uh, and so it was it was neat to then compare that GPS to then flipping back to the live camera and looking out like what is below us, which is mm-hmm. uh, you know maybe water or then possibly land at those times. So um, again, the, the, really the only thing that I took with me was my correct clothing because that's my basic form of shelter. So I packed clothing that I knew I would needed um, because I was worried about my my luggage getting lost. I took. Um, a, a second set of clothing in my check. So in my carry-on, um, I had a full outfit besides what I already wore. But I knew that that outfit that I had, I mean, it was going to protect me. I had my rain gear in there. Um, yes, there was a ferro rod. If they took it, they took it. Um, but they didn't. Um, and that was really it. I, I 
and food. Yeah. You know, I, I I actually had some of my PNG water purification, but I have tested that, and and anyone listening is like, well, dub in, but I tried it. I took salt water, and I tried the the PNG um, purification to see if it anyway it would grab the salt out and drop it to the bottom and leave the fresh water behind. And I'm here to say that it didn't. It was just as salty. But I did take some a couple packets and had those in my in my uh, carry on as well. Right. Cool. Very yeah. cool. So. You've prepped, you got on the plane, you made it there, a, not a day early, but a day before the rest of the crew planned right. to be there. Uh, first international flight, why? Why were you even going? What were you doing? What was the point of this? Yeah, so a real good friend of mine, he's basically the executive director of a church, and um, he was tasked to put this this together um, for his church. And, and when I heard he was going, I was like, how can I be a part of this? And and he got permission and and went through the, all the steps and all the paperwork we had to go go through and fill out and and accomplish that and I was a part of the team and the whole point was to go over to help with this three-story building um it's really they called it the center but it was a three-story building for Ukrainian refugees and basically you have a lot of refugees coming over from Ukraine um really seeking help and that's what this building was. So the second level of the building was already complete, and they called that part the center because there were already families living there. And so we were helping to complete the the first and third floor. And it was construction, um, all the way from plumbing to electrical to really just framing and building in windows and, and putting in walls. And, uh, you so- know... Is it, are they coming to live there permanently? They're coming out of Ukraine and they're coming to live in this building permanently? I didn't know until I got there. And what I found out is it's basically a, they only have about 120 days to be there. And so they're trying to get them um, educated and, and on really their feet, back mm-hmm. on their feet, um, to then get them to go somewhere where they can live. And, and some of them talked about the United Kingdom, UK was kind of that area that they were trying to get them to, especially if they could speak English. Right. Um, but I don't know everyone's goal or plan because the majority of the center was made up of women and children there mm-hmm. were there were men and, and males there that had come over but some of them um their husbands and fathers and and grandpas were were still over there fighting so you know and because of the language barrier i couldn't just really get in and talk with them and engage so i didn't know their stories um but that that was the point that a lot of them didn't know if their men were, yeah. they didn't know. You know, the men that came over, they were there. Um, I'm glad that they were there because they were also helping out with building that center. They were they were doing their part to yeah. what I call pull their weight, you know. Um, so they were helping out. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was, it was difficult because well, you just didn't know what the families were truly going through, but you knew that it was, it was pretty rough and tough. Yeah, and, and that's heavy because as you say that, I sit here and think about, sending my wife and two kids by themselves to another country so that I can stay and fight a war. And I don't like the sound of that at all. So I can't imagine, uh, you know, you're listening to this right now, whether you're a, whether you are a, a child or a wife or a father, whatever side of that you fall on, just, just to kind of empathize with these people a little bit, put yourself in, in those shoes because this is happening right now. Right now as you're listening to this, this is happening. Mm-hmm. Fathers are staying to fight and mothers and children are leaving so they can live and going to another country where they have no home and no job. But that brings up the importance of 
and, and God calls us to be in community, but that brings up the importance of God's people stepping up to serve God's people. Yeah. Um, and so I'm thankful that people like you and this crew went to do this so that these people have some hope and that they have a chance. But that that is heavy to even think about because it is so, so easy for us to fall into the comforts of our day-to-day, and we are so comfortable. Mm-hmm. And the things that are hard are nothing compared to leaving your family just for just for a semblance of hope and having no idea what tomorrow brings. Yeah, and seeing the children that that was that was tough. You know, mm-hmm. they kind of had a they had a school going, so the kids did um, go to school. And and the only parts that I I caught on to what they were doing is when they were teaching them English. You know, yeah. so they were practicing words, and 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 uh, some of those kids could speak English well, and and some couldn't at all. But you know, also. And it's it's not as great, but the impact that it's also having on the people in Poland. I mean, you've got a lot of people coming over. That impacts them too. Um, sometimes positive, mainly negative, because now we have to take care of these people that we weren't planning on taking care of. And and so seeing that, I'll call the community come together to help in how they are. It's it was really powerful. Right. Yeah. So exactly, we've said you're in Poland, and mm-hmm. now we know why you went. Where where exactly were you? So it's in a couple areas, but but it's what we would read it as Katowice, but they call it Katowice. So um, we're in the the Katowice area. Uh huh. Yeah. And 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 is that where you flew into? Did you were you able to fly right into that town? No. Um. Um. So they taught me over there. It's Krakow. Oh, okay. nice. But before I went, I called it Krakow. Okay. So that's where the airport's at. We arrived in Krakow, and then um the uh, the organization we were working with. Um, they picked us up and took us into that city. Now, long drive between the airport and you know, I feel like it was Katowice? only about twenty minutes. I could be off on my times, oh, but so it, pretty it close. wasn't very long. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, it wasn't very far away. So, what exactly were you doing on this building? I, I know that the your construction was kind of the main thing, and so your crew, a lot of you guys have construction experience and different skills in the construction trades. What exactly were you doing on this building and? What prepared you? Why, why Ben? Why were you qualified to be on this trip? So what we were doing, what we did when we got there was different than what, what I think we were told we were going to do. And Well, that sounds like a lot of life. Well, you know, I'm finding out through a lot of really any kind of work that you go do, um, especially when there's multiple languages and those barriers, it happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Like. Even your people that are are very strategic and live that way by all the processes of we're going to start with A and finish with Z, um, that isn't how it ends up in a lot of these projects. And so what I thought we were doing, we didn't do, and what we did was still doable by all of us, but we had to adapt and and really pivot, you know. And so what we ended up doing, um, you know, we thought we we were going to be doing more plumbing and electrical um, because that was a, that was actually the field of, of who this team reached out to was, hey, guys, we're going to go do this work. And when we got there, it was more, um, I'm going to say, concrete and sheetrock. Right. You know, and that's fine. And everyone was fine to do that, but we had to pivot because the, the, the hard part was that there were five different types of, I'm going to call it concrete for right now, but I couldn't have told you what was what because it's all in a different language. <laughs> And so, so I had to start mixing them and, and start trying to understand the consistencies to know which to use. And so I, I found 
two of the five bags that seem like thin set, like a thin set, which you would use as like a paste, like underneath tile. Yeah. And then the other one was more like grout that you'd put in between the tile, but we use that over the top to kind of match the concrete wall. So I tried to reach out. Um, I, I'm going to tell you, I spent about a half a day trying to to talk with, you know, using Google Voice or whatever. No, not Google Voice. Uh, Translate. Google Translate. There yeah. it is. Google Translate to try to kind of say which which is for this, but it's really difficult when when you can't read and understand what these items are. Um, right, and and your whole group English speaking, mm-hmm. um, few missionaries there that could help translate, and you guys had a translator assigned to you, was my understanding. Yeah, we did. But you're in Poland. Mm-hmm. You guys are all American, right? And you're building a place for Ukrainians, so conglomerate of languages. So Polska. And, and Polska's so, Poland, so they speak Polish. Yeah. So you have Polish, Ukrainian, and English. And All so three. sometimes you are translating, you're playing telephone through three different languages just to try to communicate one simple thing as as far as what kind of plaster is this? Right. Right. And that's, okay. that's the difficulty, you know? And so I do want to talk more about our Polish translator in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a fantastic job, but he doesn't speak Ukrainian either. It's, there's, is some similarities, but there's still a barrier there. Right. And, um, but he wasn't there all the time. That wasn't, he, he couldn't be there with each of you, with each of there and for everything. So, um, what we were doing there though, is, um, we were the seventh team to make it in. And so these six teams before us had done a fantastic job. Um, you know, there were some things that, um, we, we were doing, piggybacking off of what they started. So trying to come in and, and pick up where they left off can be difficult, but we did that. And um, we were basically framing in um, these windows, but it isn't like we would do here in the States. We didn't have two by fours and, and like sheetrock like we had. It was basically um, plaster, I'm going to call it plaster, and um, some sheetrock and concrete. And we had to, to really form all these windows in and, and uh, do it in a way that that still left enough room for them to like tile and pretty up after we left. So we did a lot of, um, um, we also put in some, some walls within these internal, um, rooms so that they had, you know, like large laundry rooms where they could put several washer and dryers and then tables in there for them to do their laundry and that kind of stuff on. But down in the basement, um, and I didn't find this till the very end, but down in the basement where we were working on this room, they had like 12 windows, 12 windows in one little room. I mean, it was crazy, um, but that was going to be the kids' play area. Mm. And and I didn't find that out till the very end, but that excited me because um, the very first day that, that the team showed up, which was day two for me, um, because of jet lag and, and not wanting us to use power tools until we were rested and ready to go, um, we cleaned up the trash outside um, from all the teams before us, and we had to separate all these items into like items before they could go in these bins. Hey, you showed me pictures of that. Yeah. It's just a huge dump pile out. It's there. just a huge pile. Courtyard kind and of thing, yeah. We completely cleaned that up. And why that felt good as well is because that's where the kids were playing. So the kids that were living there, they're playing in the backyard, which is around all this stuff. So to get that cleaned up for them was rewarding. And then to know that that room was downstairs in the basement, their playroom was almost done by the time we left. That was that felt pretty cool too. Yeah. If, if serving others feels so good even if it's a, it's in the smallest way to to put yourself aside in service always feels really really good um what was the weather like when you were there did you have to was it similar to when you left home or did you have to take different clothes 
So when I actually know you came back sick, actually both you and Aaron came back sick. So tell me a little bit about your, your clothing, the weather and and the illness that it brought on. So when we, before we left here in the States, it was like 90 degrees, you know, eighties and nineties. And so, so hot. So when we looked at the, uh, the temperature, it was definitely going to be more like our fall over there. And that's what I planned for. And it was, um, there were days though throughout, uh, we were there nine days. So but halfway through in the middle of it, um, it got hot enough to wear, you know, jeans and a t-shirt was perfect. Um, but the weather um, is very comparable to, you know, our northeastern states here in America. Um, it kind of, it's it's that weather pattern. Um, you know, it didn't really rain much on us. I think one day we had a little bit, but it was very comparable to where we live. Um, and before I go too far into that, I do want to finish because you had asked why in the world did Ben go? Yeah, yeah. Right. Why did you go? Um, so you weren't one, teaching survival. Over no, there. I wasn't. No, I wasn't teaching survival. Though I did teach a little bit of that, um, just off the cuff. But you know, growing up, my very first job was shoveling poo for my uncle, my great uncle, in uh, in his farm. So moved from that, then getting into construction. You know, at about 16 and, and learning how to frame houses. Were you shoveling poo in Poland? So, well, you know what? We shoveled up a lot of stuff outside, so okay. that came in handy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of debris. and to rake it and shovel it. Um, but on the construction site, framing houses. Um, so worked with my uncle with the construction team, and, and we did framing. And, and that really came in handy over there. Um, but also with the, with my uncle, learned a little bit of um, running electrical. And, and honestly, whenever you buy a home, especially if you're broke, <laughs> you have to learn how to fix those things. So um, I've done a lot of odds and ends um, with concrete to um, framing to um, plumbing, you yeah. know. And so just I know enough to be dangerous, so it was nice to, to know that there were men that were going, that that was their main um, job. They were really knowledgeable, and I was prepared to assist them in any way that they needed. And I knew I was capable of doing that. Um, if they could just figure out what was needed, then I could come do it because – the, the restrictions over there are different. So, like, even when putting in plumbing, you know, this building was made of, of brick, brick and concrete. That's all it was. There was no wood in this building. So, to meet their code, you actually had to take a, basically a jackhammer, and they were notching out these these grooves into the wall so that the pipes and stuff would fit into that. And so, it just, it was all, there. it was just very different, you know. Um, the code was different, but I still don't know what the code was. Because I, I couldn't understand them, but I just followed with, with what I was told. So, you you came back sick. I mean, Oh, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, so, you sounded like you swallowed a bullfrog when you got home. So, over there, when you talk about the weather and the culture, how they live, so they have insects, um, of course, like we do, but it didn't seem as bad. Right. Like, didn't see flies, weren't a lot of, what, what we saw a lot of were moths. So, majority of people over there leave their windows open all day. And they just leave them open. Doors, they leave them open. And there's no screens. Was it cool enough you just didn't need air conditioning? Well, the, anywhere we were at, there was no air conditioning over mm. there. The hotel we stayed in had no air conditioning. Um, I don't even know if it had a heater, honestly. <laughs> uh, but it was just a room. Yeah. you know. And they did have a TV. Um, one night I actually turned it on. Um, I was exhausted, but I turned it on just to kind of fall asleep to it. And it was easy to do because there wasn't you no English know what channels. Was going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they, they, they played a lot of reruns of sports. Yeah. So, like, the Olympics reruns was on a lot, and I don't know why, but it's just what it was. So, yeah. um, But our room, um, we left our windows open. Um, 
And that was really everywhere because, again, no screens. So we had blinds over the windows, but moths were really the only thing that was impacted that was coming into the room of right. the night when we leave the lights on at night. And so I don't know why it was different in regards to insects, but it was mm-hmm. very different. Um, and I think because we slept every night with the windows wide open, um, got a little head cold because no one else, I mean, it wasn't like a, a virus going through, I don't think, because yeah. no, no, none of the rest of the team really got sick. It was just, I think we had slept with the windows open when yeah. I think other it, people It wasn't a, a debilitating illness, but you know, it was, you did not have cell phone service and yeah. the only way to communicate was, uh, through some kind of, uh, internet, uh, internet. So mm-hmm. like WhatsApp when you had internet, but even that was spotty, but you and I only talked one time in the, in the 10 days that you were gone. And when I talked to you, you were several days in, and as soon as you started talking, I was like, he doesn't feel good. He sounds <laughs> awful. He sounds yeah. awful. So I, I knew you'd gotten sick, and you brought it home with you. But whatever it was, you didn't share it. No. Nope. You know, nobody nobody here got it. I don't think your family got it. I didn't get it. Nope. So uh, whatever it was, you left it there, and, and, and you got healed up from it. But Aaron, uh, you know, our friend that, that led this whole thing, you know, he came back with it too. So he did. Uh, definitely something to consider when you're traveling internationally. You're going to be exposed to some different weather and possibly different diseases and, and illnesses as well. So maybe maybe pack a little cold medicine to be prepared for you that. Betcha. Yeah, that was actually um, the worst was the worst of that was once I let my guard down, you know. So on the international flight back when I got into the States, I was like, I need some night quill, day quill, something, you know. And so I like forked out like it felt like twenty bucks for like a one shot of day quill because that's all you the must hotel have got had. that at the airport. Exactly, that's <laughs> the only place you can get it. So it probably would have been wise to to have some really some either allergy medicine and some of the you know cold and sinus stuff um, when you go because it is hard to find sometimes when you when you go to those places. Yeah. So the weather was cool. The windows were open. Mm-hmm. Uh, accommodations were less than five star but definitely live livable it sounds like i feel like it was five star for over there okay you know fair enough I, I think so i mean we were in a building that was definitely older but when you're talking about over there the buildings what we you know we think america is so old <laughs> their buildings over there are older than than america yeah. is you know they have, so, they have buildings from the 1500s yes. still standing and being used yes right something you kind of shared before you left with me and I, i'm really curious to hear this you had a fear about food. Mm-hmm. What was the food like when you when you were over there? Did did you get fed well? Was some of it gross? Was some did you get introduced to some new things that you didn't even know you liked? I was nervous because food is just a comfort item for me. Yeah, you know, it's kind of one of those like when I get tired or wore out, like I want to go eat a good meal and I want to go to bed. And so I was like, what's that going to be like? So my very first meal arriving in Poland was McDonald's your favorite restaurant <laughs> you know the 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 leader of um Billers International um you know she she met me and and um took me from the airport and she's like you hungry and I was like I'm getting there you know and I was like but I can wait she's like we need to eat now yeah, I was like this is your chance to this eat. is my You're chance to eat I was like let's do it yeah. so we went through the drive through McDonald's just like here or what just like here okay so I thought so, oh. so you know, she was like, what do you want to, to eat? And I was like, cheeseburger fry. You know, it's basic. Let's keep it simple. Cheeseburger and fry. Triple cheeseburger, plain, large french fry, large Dr. Pepper. That's it. I wish they had that. So I was like, cheeseburger and french fry. And she's like, what to drink? And I was like, sweet tea. And she went to order it, you know, and then she tried. She's like, well, they don't have that here. And I was like, all right, Dr. Pepper, 
And she turned back around. She's like, we don't have that either. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what do you got? She's like, Coke or Pepsi? I was like, Coke. So she goes, I need a large Coke. And the guy goes, small, medium, or big? And she goes, large Coke? And he goes, small, medium, or big? And she goes, take a big Coke then. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess there's no such thing as large. It's just called big. What about the Coke? Was it same old Coke? No, it tastes different than really? Coke over here. And, and I think... The other day here, uh, I went out, it was Brahms. I think it was Brahms, and, and we were getting the fountain drink, and it said original taste. And I, and that's when I found out Coke has different, I'll, I'll call it, um, not formulas, but recipes. Like, they have different styles of what you what you taste as Coca-Cola tastes mm-hmm. different in different parts of the world. They make it differently. Yeah, I know I've been to Mexico before, and they stock your fridge in your hotel room with pure sugarcane Coke in the glass bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it... I actually think it tastes better than what we have here. Definitely different, um, but it's just interesting that that is their that's their everyday Coke, and it's it is pretty different from what we have here in the yeah. U.S. Yeah, and this tasted different. The only way I could describe it is it tasted more like cinnamon, hmm. you know. But I, again, I don't know what what they use in the recipe. So right, but it, it did taste different. Um, everything tasted different. Uh, they don't use as much sugar in all their foods for sure. Um, definitely not a lot of sugar. Um, you know, the only Real when we call it drive-throughs, the only drive-throughs they had over there were the American Americanized fast food. So right, you don't drive through bank. You know, there's no drive-throughs over there. The only thing drive-through was was the fast foods. Um, that a Burger King, I didn't get to experience it. The rest of the team did when they came in. But you know, McDonald's, it was completely different on the inside. Um, we had went like on day five there as a group and went in, and they sell. I mean, they have like a bakery inside mm-hmm. there. I mean, they sell macaroons and and croissant rolls and all these. It was like a bakery on one part. You know, the the French fries, they also had like your big meaty steak fries and the burgers were different. They had like tons of chicken wraps. It was just so different than, than America's McDonald's. And the meat itself, texture, taste, was definitely different. Huh. Yeah. Did you like it? Were you able to eat yeah. it? Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it was good. You know, food itself, you know, we ate different times throughout the week. They fed us so well. Um, they'd even go to like local bakeries and, and for breakfast they'd bring... We call them donuts, but that's not what they were called. They were all different types of bread with different jellies in them, but different. It would almost be like, you know, loaves of bread with jelly in them. I mean, it wasn't like a cake, right? Like uh, a donut from Krispy Kreme that we get here. So it was really neat to get to, to to taste all the different things. And then for supper, I couldn't pronounce anything, but um, you know, they had pork chops, but it'd be smashed flat with a fried egg on it. Uh, I can't think of what they called that. Um, there is a name for that, but. Everything tasted great, even like the duck. schnitzel or something? Yeah, like schnitzel. It's getting closer. Is yeah. it schnitzel, I think? Yeah, yeah I ordered a schnitzel. Um, and then, you know, the sausage and kraut. I didn't really care for sausage and kraut until I went over there, and when I ate... Um, the real thing. The real thing. Man, that was good. Really? It really was good. Yeah. So... Was there oh, anything and, uh, anything that you just were like, this is repulsive, can't do this? Repulsive? Don't care for this? Well, no, I... I stayed away from it, so I didn't really try it. But, like, yeah. you know, breakfast is so different over there. They eat, like, bread and vegetables. So mm-hmm. if it is meat, it's going to be, like, ham and turkey, you know. Um, but No Jimmy Dean. No Jimmy Dean. But, you know, they know they knew you are American when you ordered ice because all the drinks, that's that's the one thing that really, really kind of was, was so different for me is that you got a drink and there was no ice in any drink. Now, McDonald's did. Your fast foods do, and it's Americanized. But when you'd go to a local restaurant or whatever, it was just a glass of water, and they'd have fruit in it, and then you would ask for gas water or still water because 
almost everywhere everybody drank gas water, which is basically carbonated water. Huh. So it's carbonated water with fruit in it. Um, if you got tired of the carbonation, then you'd ask for that still water. Um, because of lead in most of the pipes over there, and, and they talked about how, the amounts of lead, most people drank like a bottled water. You didn't really drink the the, the tap water. Right. Even even in this building we were in, we always drank, even the Ukrainian if refugees, everybody, most of them cooked with the tap water, but it seems like most people are drinking the bottled water that you would get. Hmm. So yeah. overall, maybe not as bad as you thought it was going to yeah, be? Yeah, definitely not as bad as yeah. is what I thought it would be. Um, it just diff- different, less sugar, um, even the even the, the steaks, the cut, the texture of them, just the, the meat itself was different. The duck, it just all was different, you know? Yeah, and, and I know talking to Aaron, our, our friend who, who rounded up this whole crew to go do this and really directed it, he, he was hoping he would lose a few pounds on this trip because maybe the meals wouldn't be as abundant and as good. And he came back and said he thought he maybe gained a few pounds. Yeah, so I mean, they, they, they took care of you. They really did. They fed us well. And, and, you know, it was neat to go into different cities to some of the what we call the mom and pop. Um, you'd have to call ahead because of how large our group would call ahead and get that ordered because um, they weren't used to, to producing that much food for people. So anyway, enough about the food. But that, it, yeah, it was good. Ben, you know, you mentioned... You got to go in and see some of these mom and pop restaurants in, in town and stuff. Did you guys get to do like sightseeing or have any fun or was it just work, work, work the whole time, get as much done on the, on this building as we possibly can for these folks? So the first two days were really just getting oriented and, and that jet lag, you're, you're losing six to seven hours depending on where you fly from. Um, you're losing those hours. And so, yes, you get to sleep a little bit on that on that flight over there, but it messes you up. It messed me up. It, it did take me a full day to kind of get my bearing on, you know, I'm, I'm basically at 7 PM. Um, I'm wrapping up the evening and, you know, I, from the hotel using the internet from the hotel, which was, which is in and out. Um, I was calling back home and my wife's like, it's noon, you know? So it was just weird to, to experience that. So the, the whole plan. So basically, you know, day one is to truly really get your feet and then day two through basically five is work. And, and that's what we did. We, we worked every day. But how our week fell, um, because of the, the five, day, five days of work we were going to do, one of those days fell on a Sunday. And it's rude and, and wrong to work on Sundays. So we didn't work. There was no work on Sunday. And that was a day that they actually took us. So we did experience a church over there. We went to church that morning. And then after that, they took us into the city. And then the other opportunity that we got to see the, the local anything was the last day of what we called work because um, the next day we were flying out. So that last day of work, we only worked a half a day, and the rest of the day they actually took us into um, Auschwitz. And so it's not too far from there. And and, uh, and for somebody listening that, that may not know exactly what that is, can you, can you uh, so let us know? So we went to Auschwitz one and Auschwitz two, and, and basically it was the concentration camps. Mm-hmm. So... Auschwitz one originally it wasn't called that, but originally it was just the Polish prison. So right. for war and all that, that was the prison that they had, and and then it was taken over, um, became a concentration camp by the Nazis, by Germany, and then because of how fast and how many people were coming in, it, it led to the Auschwitz two, which was down the road by by railroad, and so um, it was about f- a five hour tour that we took, um, but yeah, I definitely want to get into that. Um, but to go back to what we did first was we went into Katowice, 
into that that like the downtown of that region. Big towns. I mean, what it is? Yeah, it's a big city, but yeah. the buildings there are so old. You know, so. 15 1600s you know it's it's these old brick buildings that look beautiful i mean they're they're up kept they're they're uh, they all look great um but we went downtown there and they were having some kind of i'm gonna call it a like a it would be like what we call like a beer and wine festival kind of yeah but um you know it was like local meats that people made and cheeses and you know we kind of walked through and, and that's cool it was really cool yeah. you know we bought like they would have like hot chilies dipped in chocolate so we were buying and trying different foods w- what stinks about it is that we couldn't bring any of that back with us because of yeah customs customs yeah. thank you that's the word we couldn't bring any of that back through customs so we had to, to just eat it there and enjoy it there but i'd love to have brought that back for families to try because it was all really good um really awesome um but yeah we got to see see some of that city um you know they have malls there so there was a mall and we went in they had um an ice cream shop inside the mall i mean they're small malls they're not as big as our average malls but you know it they had different brands and and they had some american american brands in there that you could get stuff but that was that downtown you know you could definitely tell the people that was the area that had some money because just right outside of that, you know, you're talking about these these buildings look abandoned, and and that's one of the ones we were trying to fix up. To it was like a, a an old lead mining areas, mining areas where we were at, and yeah. and um, um, again, it they made it look really beautiful because the people there are. I'm gonna say it this way: they're the clean. Like you didn't have trash out on the streets. You didn't have you know McDonald's cups blowing by and. You found some cigarette butts in some areas, but for the most part, just I'm gonna call them the poles. They were they were a clean people. They um, down downtown there, they actually had a huge recycling bin. It was this metal container in the shape of a heart, and people would would put their aluminum cans in it. It was almost full, you know. And and any trash can that you would find would have four different colored trash bags in it. And I would look at like our leader of this trip, and I'd be like which one do I use? Like, <laughs> I've got a, <laughs> I've got an ice cream comb wrapper here. Like, what do I do? It? Which one does it go in? Cause uh-huh. I couldn't read it, but they, they really take, whether it's because they're made to, or they want to, um, they recycle a lot. So they separate out all their trash, even right there in the moment. Um, and so very clean bathrooms. I can't stress enough. Like every bathroom I went into, Brian, they were so clean, man. Mm-hmm. Like, it just breaks my heart. You'll we'll go into a bathroom here at the mall, and and you'll see whatever you can think of smeared on the walls. And it's like it wasn't like that. It was just so it shocked me for it to be that clean, that upkept. Um, so people are capable of that. They are saying. very yeah. capable yeah. of doing it. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so very clean city. Um, and then you know we got to we got to experience that, and then we worked. Those five days, super hard. I mean, we got up early, um, went right to work, and we worked all the way until time for what I call supper. Yeah. And, and so... And you mentioned it, and I, I don't want to just roll over it because it is such an impactful part of our history, and most of us won't get to go see it like you did. Um, let's spend a minute on Auschwitz. Okay. You know, th- this is something, it's one of the most horrific, um, dark stories in the history of the world. Literally millions of people... Uh, we're put to death. Mm-hmm. We're put to death here, um, and we're and we're talking uh, in our grandparents' lifetime. A lot of us have family that fought World War II. There are people still alive today. Survivors of this are still alive today. This is not in our too distant past. Um, some people don't have 
the call it courage or intestinal fortitude to go to this place. There are even groups of people that deny that it happened. Um, but you were there. I want to hear your experience and and as your friend and and you've been back for several weeks now. I know that you are still processing what you saw and experienced there to this very day as we sit and record this. So talk to me about that experience, Auschwitz, concentration camps, um, a place with, with so much horror and history. Yeah, and that's, that's where we, we went into that day. We, we did that, and we also went to Krakow. Um, you know, so we'll talk about Auschwitz Um to my historians out there, they're awesome at dates. I'm 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 forgetting the dates right now. I want to say it's 1941 to 1945. 40s, yes, early so, 40s. Yeah, and so it was like it's it wasn't that long ago, and that blows my mind right there off the bat that that it just wasn't that long ago. But um, we actually hired a tour guide that spoke English, and he did a fantastic job. He was actually a like a local. Um, kind of a, re- a local press reporter, and so the information he had was was so integral to this tour because he he was using stories from a lot of the survivors, and so different parts along the way of this tour in different buildings he would share parts of their stories and and it just I mean the word sad isn't even the right word um, horrific uh, yeah horrific and to to be standing there and seeing it you know where. Me and my survival mindset, just who I am, I was really putting myself there in that moment of what would, what would I have done, what would I do, and so as I was going through and listening to, to all the stories, to all the information, I kept thinking like, what would I have done? What, what on, on either side? Yeah. Uh, honestly, on either side, and so. The tour consisted of, we went through um, all of the, we didn't go through into every building, but they used some of the buildings um, to show different parts of, of the story, of what was happening. And so, you know, looking at the, the, the Nazi side, um, where they would be standing, the towers, you know, the check-in as people came in, to we even found towards the back side of the property, I don't know the title of, of what his role would have been, but... Um, basically the main, the main guy, the, the boss of all the bosses there at, at Auschwitz at this whole prison, yeah, maybe the warden or something, the like warden. That. Yeah. yeah. And, and they may have shared it and I forget it, but, um, his home, he, him and his family lived, um, you could see it right on the corner from the um, electric fence. Like yeah. you, you just, it's just right a little farther than a stone throw, you know? So his kids are out playing in the yard while all this stuff is happening. Like yeah. he was living there anyway. So you know, um, some of the hospitals in there, that's where they would take some of the men in one and women the other, and they would give them things to see how to make them sterile. You know, uh, you would have the areas out front where they would um, hang people um, to be uh, an example for those that would try to leave. Um, they had your firing lines where they would line people up and do that. And so we, we went through all of that, you know, but then they took us into the actual um, gas chamber and that there, that was a hard one to, that was a hard one to be in a hard one to, to think through, you know, um, you would, we walked right through that. And, and at the back side of that's where that, the cremation. So it went from gas to put them right into the crematory and, and, uh, the ashes, they kind of talked about different areas that ashes would have been placed or spread or scattered, but all of them, you know, 
the propaganda is, it was talked about a lot. And, and that's kind of where my mind was of what I've fallen for this. Like, would this have made sense? You know, and, or maybe even, did you ever have the thought of like, can, could this happen today? Could this happen now, 80 years later? Right. I'm going to address that in a second because it was at Auschwitz too. So Auschwitz one, they also had inside some of the buildings, like all the luggage, everything, everybody left behind. I mean, they, they, they kept everything that anyone they brought up, mainly Jews, but there was a, a gypsies and um, Americans. There were all sorts of people that came over, but the majority that they that they killed there were the Jews. And just seeing all they, they all their shoes and um, makeshift legs and wheelchairs and and baby um, you know dolls and and especially the room that had the glasses. There was, I mean. A stack of glass, thousands and thousands of glasses. Um, the one that impacted me, they wouldn't let me take a picture, and it's the one that that still bothers me today. Is is the room full of um, human hair? You know, um, whether they they would take it before they went into the chamber or, or after the passing of those people, they they kept all the hair, and you'd see like ribbons and bows, you know, still attached to the hair, and and to the side of that, um, we found out through that guide he was telling us that that they were selling the hair to a company and turning them into rugs and so they had some of those rugs there and you could see the human hair in it and just the i mean all of that like how do you process i mean you're right there in it your bite you're that's it's there it's, it was really still difficult you can probably hear my voice it's still difficult to process through today of, mm-hmm. um but from there because of how many people were coming in and what they were trying to do to these people that's when auschwitz too which is down the road um we left there and met the guy there and um, we got out of the, out of the vehicles, we went into, um, we went through the railroad tracks and, and we basically started walking with him and we got to a stopping point and he goes, so that was about our 10 minute walk. And that's the exact walk that they, you know, that they took their final walk, their final walk. And mm-hmm. so they led them right there to that walk. Um, but what they would do is they would get out of the wagon, you know, the trains, a little tiny wagon, 60 to 80 people would be smashed in this thing. Um, I won't get into the, all the crazy stories that he was sharing in, that were happening inside there, but once they would get out, they would have them put their name and address on their luggage, you know, like we do today for when we're getting on planes, you know, here's, put your information on so you can get it back. And then they would do the 10 minute walk and then they would have them hang their coats up and hats up and then they that walk right into the gas chamber, lock the door behind them and boom, you know. Um, so just walking that kind of seeing that process, you know, they would talk to some of them before they would tell them to go left or right. You know, if you had any kind of of information in regards to skills um, and intelligent, you know, any of those things, they would they would try to pick those people out to to then have them live at that camp to help in some way. You right. know what I mean? Um, so you had the people that were automatically just gone, and then you had the people that were living in what what I'm going to call the barracks. And what's crazy is that all of these little barrack buildings that were built out there that these these people that were still alive were staying in, um, they followed by code when they built them. So like every barracks, I'll call it, had a fireplace in it. And that was to meet the code, the local code for these people, you know, and, and even in the trusses, the headers that you'd find in these big open... But they didn't get to use the fireplaces. No, no. Yeah. The, the, sometimes they said they would, and people would lay, like, it's, it's hard to explain... Um, on a podcast, it's really hard to share all of that, but sometimes they did. But because of these buildings, there was no insulation. They were just, I'll just say, a plywood wall, right. you know, 
um, there wasn't much heat. I mean, and it's cold. Yeah, over there. they were laying on the cold. chimneys to stay warm because all your heat's running out and going outside. But it was just built that way for code to follow code, mm. so that, that in any inspection came in, there was like we're following code, you know. But and the headers and trusses and all that, they'd have words up there like honor and respect, dignity, and and have all that up there. So. So much to share and all that, and that's not what this is. It's just, um, you know, going through and, and seeing that and then hearing that some people say that didn't happen to um, putting myself there and, and even listening to the the guy talk about, like, I mean, the word he left us with is is this happened, like, accept this. And that, I think that was the word he used a lot is accept this, accept it. And he kept talking about accept it. And that was a question that I actually asked him, and it was uncomfortable for me to ask, and, and I think it made everyone uncomfortable that was with me when I asked it. But I asked him, I said, if you would have been here on either side, what what would you do? What, what could you do? What would you have done on either side? I mean, if you were on the what, what everyone identifies as the bad side, the ones that's doing all the killing— if, if you left, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill your family. Like, that happened a lot. There are stories of people that stepped out and did that. Then inside, in the camp, if you didn't go in the gas chamber, you're still, there was different levels of, of what you were allowed to do. The ones that, I mean, there were Jews that were actually in charge of the other Jews, and they would tell on people, you know, because if they didn't, they knew their families would be killed or they would be killed, and it was just this this... This constant, like, everybody against everybody, and you're watching out for who, who's who got my back or not, you know? And then you had, um, in, in Auschwitz one, you had an electric fence that ran around it, and a lot of people, they were just talking about the stories that some people would use the electric fence as a way out, you know, to, to be done. and um, They would execute themselves. Yeah, yeah, correct. And, you know, I just kept thinking, like, what 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 would you do in that situation? Yeah. Like, what did people do? And... And that honestly led to to me really trying to think through. And, and, and someone on the team made the comment of, like, where was God in all this? Mm. Where is God? Where was yeah. God? You yeah. know, this living God, where was he? Tough question. Very tough. Because if, if, if you're in the concentration, what do you do? You, because here's another example. Every morning, those that were still alive, they would have them come out of the buildings and stand in front of the buildings. And they would have to stand there, and they'd get a head count. If anybody was missing in the head count, everybody had to stand in that spot and not move until everyone was accounted for. And so I was told that there was one time that two people did escape. And so they made everybody stand outside until they were found. It took 16 hours and, and they stood there, literally stood there for 16 hours. And I won't tell about some of the people that didn't stand there what happened, right? But some of them died. And and so it's just chaos, crazy. Like if, if you leave you're still impacting the people that people died because of your actions when you left, you running away. So really crazy to get your mind wrapped around it hard. Um, but one of the the guys on set, it isn't about where is God, it was where was God's people. And and that kind of helped me because the question that I asked the guide is, is what would what would you have done? And he couldn't answer me, just yeah. like I couldn't answer for myself. Answer? How yeah. do you answer that, right? But but what do you do? And and that is the the sad part is where where was God's people and all that? And, and so then you asked me, well, well, do I feel like that could happen today? And, and I do believe that people could definitely get wrapped up in being told false information and believing in it. 
trusting, and, yeah, trusting in it, and and definitely those things happening. Um, I do think you kind of had uh, experience since you've been home that kind of brought up some memories or of, from what you saw. You want to share that? Yeah. So so coming back from that, and then um, went to a local concert. It was a Garth Brooks concert. Um, my wife and I had been wanting to do that for years, so um, I was able to to go do that. But that alone was really neat. But at the very end of it, right, we're looking at twelve thousand ish people in one little spot. And as I got up to this shuttle zone, trying to make it back to my vehicle, um, there were there were at, I'll say at least eight thousand people, all in these gated lines, just shoulder to shoulder holding on to each other holding on to each other so they didn't lose their kids behind them because they were all trying to wean through and and that was just in the in the gated lines just to get into those lines was i would say another thousand and so my wife and i decided to to not leave early and to stay through the entire thing and we even waited until most of the people were gone from from the area where all the seating in the stadium there and when I got up to it, I was like, babe, this is this is going to take two, two and a half hours just to get through. But it stressed me out. I mean, <clears throat> just thinking if somebody would have pulled a gun and shot two times, I mean, yeah. well, there would have been devastation. You just came from Auschwitz where yeah, they did that. people like, were herded like cattle herded, yeah. to their death. Yeah. and <clears throat> Not saying you thought that was going to happen, but it no. just kind of gave you this picture of like, man, I just saw that that happened, and now I'm literally seeing where I'm at right now, people herded like animals. Yeah, and, and I think you and I even talked through that. Like, <clears throat> let's let's get out of what really happened yeah. at the concert, and we got into this hypothetical of <clears throat> they could have shipped everybody off to wherever they wanted to. Yeah. Right now, would somebody have stepped in and intervened at some point? Absolutely, because we, we still live in this state. So to answer your question, could something that that drastic happen? I don't think currently in this moment, but I absolutely believe something that catastrophic could happen in the future. Right. Um, again, yeah, mm-hmm. I do. But right now with with the people that are, are currently alive and, and some of the leadership we still have active, um, it would be tough for them to pull off, yeah. you know. But why I'm sharing that with, with the concert was we ended up, we, we hiked, we hiked back because for me it was like, I, I don't want to be standing here that long. And man, if something crazy was to happen it would be catastrophic like yeah people would be stampeding other people um it didn't feel comfortable it wasn't comfortable so i left and, yeah. and did a different went a different way so to kind of wrap up the the auschwitz mm-hmm. thing here and i'll I, I want you to share whatever whatever you think people need to hear um but I, I do want you to answer this question if given the opportunity do you think people should go do that or should they avoid that tour If you're over there and, and you have the opportunity to go do it, I would encourage you to do it. I would. You say that with hesitation in your voice. Because there's an impact. So anytime that you receive knowledge of any kind, any kind at all, you know, you can live in ignorance. Some people can live in stupidity. But once you, you have information and knowledge, there's a responsibility with it. Like... You have responsibility now. You know it's it's okay as a child to not know those things growing up, but once you know them, now there's consequences for you knowing it, and and that's where my hesitation is. Do I what I encourage you to go see it? No, don't go take your family right now and, and make this trip. But if you are over there and you have the opportunity, 
go do it. Um, you will learn a lot. Um, it will it can definitely change your perspective and, and definitely give you a paradigm shift. Um, but I hesitate because once you have that information, it's it's hard to swallow. It's hard to understand. It's hard to to uh, get your mind wrapped around. And, and you can probably even hear it. It still impacts me today and and, and still still actually processing through some of the stuff I learned. Um, so, I yeah, if you have the opportunity, go do it. But I wouldn't go out of your way to do it um, because the responsibility that you have once you once you have the information. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I know kind of tough to share some of that and, and to bring back some of those emotions, and I know you're still processing. So I appreciate you sharing it. Just hearing it from you has impacted me. Uh, I know not as great as actually being there, but I'm sure people listening appreciate that as well. So thank you. Because I want to add for showing nine for days sharing. over there, you know, so away from home, being in a different culture, um, climate, not weather, but climate of, of how people engaged and, and acted. And um, it was different. So to to be a part of, of this serving people that needed it, that were being impacted by war and chaos was happening, right? To to be a part of that, in that, and then to then go and and see what has happened not too long ago as well. Yeah. I mean that was a heavy it was a heavy nine days, you yeah. know, and then and then me being on alert, because we talk about survival, we talk about playing, but me being on alert of heading over there and then coming back home and um Anyone that's flown knows it's it, it's just stressful just doing a two hour flight from the, going through TSA and checking everything out and you know in my mind as I've got my backpack I'm like did I take everything out is you know I've already verified four times that my my firearm's not in there but as I'm going through I'm like did I you know is it gone you know it's there is a lot of stress just in traveling and and to then go over there and, and to be a part of that there was a lot of emotion that week and and I still got a lot of emotion coming back and and really sorting that out and and working through it. Yeah. Yep. Well, let, let's shift gears and get a little more into, I'm going to call it the positive side. And this is one of my favorite things that you have shared with me. Um, and th- this is going to be great because this is what we do. This is what we love, what we teach. But um, there were missionaries there. Yes. They've been there for a long time. And so Poland is largely Catholic. And so you kind of even mentioned, and, and you can shed more light on this from your experience, but you mentioned being over there, it felt godless. Yeah. And and yeah. so you've got these missionaries there trying to share the gospel, sharing that, that we aren't good, that Christ died to, to cover our sins, and nothing we can do t- to ever try to be good will, will earn us our salvation, that what he did, his death on the cross, gives us our hope in, in our life, his blood covering us. But they're using hunting to share the gospel. And, and the hunting, <laughs> kind of a loose term because... What you're about to share is so different from from hunting here in America, and I can't wait for people to hear it and for you to share it. <clears throat> but the fact that they're using hunting, something we love, something we teach to do that in a place that needs the Lord, um, is really cool. You want to dive into to all that? Yeah, so the there was a couple. Um, they were the missionaries for Poland, and we had actually got to meet some missionaries, the Ukrainian missionaries, um, but they had to evac out, so I got to meet them because they had come over um, kind of as a sanctuary of like, we need help, help us, and, and they did in that region, that area. Um, but the, the Polish missionaries, um, they had been there for 30 years. So for 30 years, they had been living their life there, and, and they, in their minds, they were, they were Polish. Um, they were 
all yeah. in, baby. I mean, that's they're natives now. They're native now, you know. <clears throat> but it it actually required them to be there that long to go through the process of even becoming a what's called a hunter, you know. So a process. Yeah, it's crazy, and I may even be missing some of the steps that I'm about to teach you and tell you about. But you know, coming from the states, being a hunter, anyone listening, you know what. It, what it means to hunt, you know, that there's a few things you have to complete before you go do any of that equipment you buy, uh, uh, tags and, and licenses you have to buy. Hunter safety course. Hunter safety course. But, you know, it may feel like a lot over here, but oh my goodness, you know, when I got to meet him, that's kind of how we connected right off the bat is, is we love to hunt. And so something that they did. So I made it there a day early, like we discussed. Once the rest of the, the team showed up on day two, my day two, their day one, um, the missionaries actually got out their horns. So their horns, like bugling horns, they got them out and played us played them a song as they, they come out of the van and got to the center. And um, I didn't understand it at first. Like, what's this mean, this signaling, these horns? But it's it's a part of the hunting culture, man. It's It's what they do over there. And so first how do you become a hunter so basically you have to be a citizen honestly you have to be like live there so for them to be able to even become hunters they gave all the glory to god like this is why we came god made this happen because it really shouldn't have type of thing so but the whole process is really long and lengthy um you first have to take basically an eighth eight months of school like a college to you have to pass this this college basically excuse me hunter safety here's a couple days yeah yeah yeah, a couple days to eight months you know so once you complete that which there's a cost to that you're paying money for that yeah once you complete that then it gets just that's where i I kind of lost track because there's so many steps you basically have to you have to go to the police to obtain a certificate you have to pay them money and then you have to then go get like this certificate to go even look at the guns at a dealership, then you pick out what you want, but you can't get it yet. And then you have to come back with like a, another certificate to then purchase the gun and purchasing that firearm. Brian, it's, he he was just talking about how expensive the guns were when he's like, they're the same ones from you get in America, but you can't buy them from America and bring them. You have to, you have to buy them here. You have to buy these, what they have. And when we say guns, it's only rifles, no pistols, only rifles you cannot have a pistol in your prison you can't carry pistols only the the police or or what they're going to call that military would could carry pistols um so only rifles then after you have purchased that then you have to go buy your ammunition and you have to have everything registered and written down on this form to then go get your ammunition because you can only buy ammunition for yourself and you can only buy the ammunition for the gun you have so here in the States, let's say that I don't even own a 22, but I want to go buy some 22 ammunition. I can do that. You can't do that over there. Hmm. If you want to, if I was running the store and you're like, hey, Ben, pick me up some shotgun shells. I couldn't buy them for you. You have to go in and you have to show your licensing. You have to show all your guns, all of that to buy the fire, the ammunition, the rounds of ammunition for your gun. And so that's just a whole long process. But then you have a form that you keep with you. And you have to pay for these different animals, you know, the the stag, the red deer, all these different animals that are over there that you can hunt for. Um, and you have to have them all listed out. And there's a lot of rules for even the types of some some deer you can only shoot if they're so many inches tall. And they're talking about how difficult that is because you're trying to, to really guess that yeah. with your eyes through binoculars, you know. And so 
you can only mess up twice before you lose being able to hunt. There's restrictions on all this stuff. And not to get in the weeds on all that, but just just really trying to share how different it is and how difficult it is to be a hunter yeah. over there. You so know? why did they they went through this crazy process? But why? How are they using this for for God for God's people? You know, they t- basically in short, what they were sharing is that because um, of Catholicism. So most people are Catholics, and and if any anybody outside of being a Catholic comes in, they consider them a cult, and. So by him really becoming this hunter for this region, he's starting to build relationships and work alongside other hunters, and he guides hunts. So you got people coming and paying for guided hunts, and he's guiding them. Now, that is so different than over here. Guiding, they they blow these horns, and, and they start the hunt. They drive, so they actually drive in big, large parties and sometimes use dogs, and they drive these animals. Uh, when an animal is, is harvested or killed, they bugle and play... They're, they've got songs for different animals and their death, and then once they're done, they, they play songs as a wrap-up, but they signal, and that was the whole point of they signal. So when they blow certain certain horn signals, that's letting other people know what's happening. Maybe we could start this here. Maybe we could have a, a white tail down, <laughs> big buck down <laughs> horn. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You can bring I, it to America. It's just crazy. But, <clears throat> but these missionaries that are now hunters, Two things that that were my takeaway from that is they were definitely meeting people and building relationships and and being able to share the gospel message when they probably couldn't have any other way. And they're all about relationships. Is what you're telling me? Yeah, it really was. So they even get um, called out to do um, funerals, both humans and animals. So when certain animals, like their their hunting dogs, pass and stuff. They would come do do funerals for like them, and then and then for the people as well. Like your hunters, when hunters would pass away, they would come in and do the the signaling horns um, ceremonies for for them. Wow, which was so different from here. But they had to take an oath. So they had to take an oath to Poland as a hunter that if they come under attack, that they would defend and fight for Poland. And so they become military, the last line of military defense for Poland as a hunter. Wow. So, you know, that was cool that they were able to say, yes, I will fight for you. You know, they they were committed to do that because you have to, to be cool, able to That's cool, but that's a big responsibility, Huge to, responsibility to take on. And to know that it could happen at any time with yeah. what's possibly going on. Yeah, just, you know? just miles away, the war is happening. Yeah, it's happening. Um, and with that, too, you have, as a, as a responsibility as a hunter, you have, you own all the animals. So if the animals cause destruction to any of the farmers or farmland, like the farmers in their land, um, the hunters have to pay. It's their responsibility. It's their responsibility. Wow. So if they truly are in charge of the numbers within their acreage that they have access to hunt. So what that means is there are different hunting groups. And some groups may may be in charge of 100,000 acres. 100,000 acres. 100,000 acres. And... They have to hunt all that to control the populations so that they're not impacting the land for the locals that are living there that aren't hunters. So there's a weight there of they have to pay that and and they have to take care of that. And so they, as a huge group, know usually the carrying capacity. They they know how many animals they need to, to try to harvest each year to maintain that, to keep it. So it is different, whereas here in the States, we have our government is paying people to 
check on these animals to help regulate all of this stuff. Right. But we, the people, we own them. Yeah. There are animals. That's why we vote and vote in the people we want to govern and help take care of all that information so that we get to go hunt them. Whereas out there, it really does come back to the hunter. And mm. that's another, that's, that's a crazy responsibility, right? Because while we were there, uh, the church we went to, the hotel we were staying at, there was hog sign everywhere. I mean, I'm talking, they are wild hog, wild hog, tearing up all kinds of, of the land, the ground. And whoever is in that region that those hunters that's their responsibility it's not the, the locals they can't just go out and pop 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 and, and Did you get to see any wild game while you were there big i got to actually see wild hog yeah, yeah. it was the very last it was we got up at 2 30 a.m there to to leave at three and as we were out waiting on that shuttle i mean they were out the pig was out and i tried to sneak up on them um, but they found me out pretty quick and they took off um, but it was neat to see them. But other than that, no, we were in the city, you know, um, not a lot of wildlife to see in, in those areas that we went to. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is an absolutely crazy story. That, And I'm so thankful that that's not what hunting here is in the United States. I'm right. so thankful that right. that we uh, we can go get our background checks and, and get our firearms and, and go get our ammunition and, and go hunt public land, even that, like you said, the government is taking care of and maintaining for us that, what a what an awesome privilege uh, that we have here, and uh, that that really helps me not take it for granted. Yeah, you know what about the people there? I mean, you you've mentioned the poles were clean, but were there any relationships that you built with people that were living in the building? Um, some, some impactful people that that you brought home, not people that you brought home, but some impactful relationships that that will stick with you. So before I talk about the impactful relationships, because I hope you didn't smuggle anybody home. I didn't. Okay. No, no, I didn't bring any people home. There were definitely impactful relationships, but you had brought up earlier that I had said that it felt godless. Yeah. Right. So that really comes from the interaction with the people first and foremost. And what I what I mean by that is is just walking down the street, um, engaging with people, um, even hearing like the local folklore, like in Krakow. You know, there's a long st- story about a dragon and that disrupted the town and they were stealing the sheep you know and it's a story that kind of lives on and it's this this weird story that nonsense i think so yeah Yeah. i mean they even you know had they sold dragons and and even the castle that we visited and and toured and, and looked around you know all of the they had dragons iron dragons out you know and stuff so that's stuff that's lived on today even for hundreds and hundreds of years and I guess I guess I would share like where we're from here in the states. It, this doesn't happen all over the states, but people open the doors for you. You know, um, people say hi, welcome. And again, it could be language barrier. It could be some of what I was happening to me. But those people that that hello, how are you? Good to see you today. Didn't see a lot of that, and I know it was a stressful time for them over there. And, and there's a lot happening, and and it just this this feeling of especially in these bigger cities just this feeling of lack of joy maybe yeah you know that's why i said godless i don't know how to put it into words it 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 just feels different than here in the states you know an example i'm not a huge fan of going to chicago airport mm-hmm. not a huge fan yeah being there for i had to stay there for eight hours that was my layover come back was eight hours i was in the for eight hours there but Brian, I'm telling you, when I flew back and I got to Chicago Airport, 
I felt at home. Yeah. It was just different. You know, and, and I'm not talking about familiar because I don't like big cities. I, do, I don't like the Chicago airport. But I could engage with people. And, and not even talking about the language barrier. Like, if I smiled, someone smiled back. Mm-hmm. And it's just it just felt so different. And that's the only way I can describe it. But there were relationships with the, that were built. And one in particular, his name was Vasily. And I hope I'm saying that right. That's how everybody said it. Um, this little boy, he was seven years old, so it reminded me of my son. And, and after school, this kid was ready to work. No one asked him to. No one, no one really wanted him to. <laughs> but this kid was ready to work. And, and we knew when school was out because he'd show up and he would steal a pair of our gloves. He'd come up, grab him, somebody put gloves on, and he would clap them and look at you like, what can I do? You know? And so he helped us. He he tried he we let him help us with all kinds of stuff. He worked so hard. Um, he would work until Mama would come find him and say, "Vasily, come." You know, mm-hmm. like uh, it was just awesome to to see the kids be kids. No matter where you go, they're they're learning, exploring, playing, being kids. Did you get to jump in and, and play games? Yeah, we did. Yeah. And, and one day that we had some time there, um, taught him how to play a new game. Uh, basically, it's a it's a small type of dodgeball, like a small enclosed where it's you're not just hitting people in the head right but if you get hit with the ball you're out and and so we got to play with them and all the kids were laughing giggling playing you know and and us as adults got to do that too and um it was an awesome time for us to come together um but Vasily is the one that that really made an impact on me you know being over there that's even even if his parents don't take any away from this he will and um one of the last things he told, so the very last day that we were there is we were leaving for good uh, on the shuttle to head head out. Um, the last day that we were going to get to see them. He looked at all of us and, and he and he said it in uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian, I can't think of, yeah, we'll just say it that way. He said it in a different language. He said, I am coming to America. And we were like, if anyone here, it's you. You know, I mean, he just had so much drive and passion and, and curiosity mm-hmm. and just an awesome kid. Um, there were times where he was doing things and I'd have to be his dad. And I would say, no, Vasily, you can't touch that electrical cord there. Like, you know, I mean, he, he was just curious, wanted to help. Um, the Also, some of the relationships on day one, waiting for the rest of the team, I got to work inside the center. So where people were already living. And there was a kitchen, so I got to put on, I got to really finish up the cabin, the cabinets that were inside. And so I got to meet a lot of the women. Um, they cooked me their local meals, which I don't know what they were. It was a meatball, but it had like vegetables in it. And it was like, I saw it really soaked in water. I mean, it was like baked in water, but they fed that to me. Uh, pea soup. I had no idea it was pea soup till like three days later, but it didn't even taste like pea soup. But Got to, to taste some of the, what they make, their local you know, food. Got to meet some of those moms that um, just seeing all the women come together and do it, what they could do for their families. Uh, a lot of awesome. And then, and then the relationships built with the, the men and women that showed up to serve that I hadn't got to work with here in the States to the, the team at the ground, the missionaries out there, those relationships. Um, just awesome people. Just they have such a big heart for people and seeing them really sacrifice what we what we take for granted for over here the sacrifices they have just just being over there is was a humbling for me that um very very appreciative to have uh, men and women that are are serving 
the Lord and serving the people over there for sure. Yeah. Well, leave us with this, Ben. And this may be tough because it was a powerful trip. What was the most impactful thing for you? You know, you've, you've, you went through the jet lag, getting home, you got to see your family and, and just kind of retrospectively, what was the most impactful thing that, that you were left with? I'm still, still trying to streamline that down to like, you know, a word or a sentence that I can't yet. Um, it goes back to what one of the, the men said is that, where is God? You know, where is God in all this? And we can use that example all that we can say that right now with what's happening with where is God? And, and when you come back to say, where's God's people? That was my true takeaway. Um, to, to share that and explain it and give you the answers for all of that would take a long time because I, I would just be running on and, and, and trying to still process through that. But, you know, God created us and gave us dominion. And if, if no matter what you believe, understand that, that this, from this perspective, a living God, as a living God, if he was to come down right now and to take care of every problem that we had that we sometimes see as a problem or an actual concern or problem, if he was to insert himself every time for everything, I don't know where, where true free will would come from. I don't know what that would even look like. And the Bible also tells us that the moment that Jesus Christ comes back, it's done. Judgment is here. It's it's there's not a and there's not an option to 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 freely submit your life anymore and, and to want to have a relationship with him. That that the author is now in the play. It's it's revelation is here. And so to to understand that that we are prompted by the Holy Spirit to serve people to to worship him, um, to live for him freely on our own will, to, to have that free choice. Um, that's probably my, my biggest takeaway is where is God's people? And that's why it's so powerful and so impactful for me that when you feel prompting, right now, no matter what you believe, if you have that conscience, that, that prompting that's happening, you better listen to it. You better listen to it, whether that's to to have a relationship with him or to go talk to somebody about your testimony or why you love him. If you're prompted to to get up and go accomplish something, then go do it. It's it's the promptings that I'm telling you because that is the question is where is God's people? And right now that's what I would ask for the entire, everyone listening here in America, America especially, is where is God's people? Because it is us. It is God's people that are doing God's work through his prompts because if he was to come down here and truly do it himself, it's done. It's over. The end is here. And, and I hope you understand that. I hope that makes sense to you. Um, that's what I took away from especially Auschwitz, that we as God's people must go out. We must do the work. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're required to do until our day is done. And, and I would challenge anyone in that, that the moment that you feel prompted to follow him, you feel prompted to go do his work, you feel prompted to get up off the couch and serve your children, your your community, it's time to go do that. Because when you don't, there's a lot of negative consequences that follow um, for you and all the people around you. So that's my takeaway, man. It's from my heart. I, I feel convicted to say it. So I'm, I'm being prompted to say it. And so I am. Yeah, I, I'm proud of you for sharing. I'm proud of you for going and doing the work. Uh, proud of Aaron for putting this whole group together. 
um, you know, I, I love you guys. I'm definitely glad you're home and back with your your families where you belong. Yeah, and I want to thank, you know, as before we start closing this up, I just want to thank, um, we brought up Aaron Nork's name a few times. Um, we, we quickly talked about him. Without Aaron, I wouldn't have been able to go. Um, without Aaron's father, I wouldn't have been able to go. And I want to thank those men for, for being the leaders of this trip, for organizing and reaching out to the men that, that did win. I want to thank the men and women that went with us to serve. Um, I was so blessed to get to, to learn more about them. And, and you know, we had devotionals each day, and, and they shared a lot, and I, I grew and learned a lot in them. And then the missionaries over there, um, you know, I don't know how protected it is, so I haven't really shared their names, and I'm not going to. Um, I just don't know where the line is with some of that, so I'm leaving it there. But all the missionaries that I met, um, you know, they translated for us. They're serving. They're, they didn't have to be there, and they were. I, sh- I can't thank them enough for instilling their information and message and, and knowledge um, in me and the whole team while we were there. And and even the main company, it's International Builders. Um, they were the ones that met us and we worked with. Um, they are doing incredible things. You know, I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. And so to be a part of what they're doing, um, man, that was uh, re- still rejoicing in that. It was awesome. Um, to my family, to my friends, to Brian, um, everybody that held down the fort while I was gone. I just can't thank them enough. Um, and then, you know, again, Aaron was an integral part of all this, so I can't thank him enough for that opportunity as well. And, and lastly, and, and firstly, is is God. Um, he helped me to grow a lot in that, and, and I can't wait to continue to share more of what he reveals uh, from that experience um, moving down the road. So thank you to everyone. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing all that, Ben. If you have, you know, this is our longest podcast yet, so... If you've made it to the end of this, uh, please follow us along on, on any of our social accounts. Um, if you want to support what we're doing here at Meant to Be Outdoors, we greatly appreciate that. The best way to do that is uh, we have a link tree on each of our mm-hmm. uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, and you can go to our Patreon account and you can actually support us financially by becoming a, a monthly member. Um, we greatly appreciate those that are supporting us. And, and if you're considering that, uh, we would greatly appreciate your support as well. Um, you can support us also just by listening Uh, like the podcast follow it let us know how we're doing leave a review give us a rating Um, if you don't want to leave any words just just give us a a star rating let us know how we're doing if you'd like to hear some different topics or hear some like to hear us change some things we'd we'd appreciate the feedback as well so uh, really appreciate everybody listening that is it for this episode of the meant to be outdoors podcast we hope that between now and the next episode we find you find some time to build some relationships and hopefully you go outdoors. Thank you for listening to the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast, hosted by Brian Hoffmeyer and Ben Brandell. Please help us by subscribing. Also, follow along on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook.